This is the Humanist Report with Mike Figueredo. Support this podcast by joining the independent progressive media revolution today at humanistreport.com. Welcome to the Humanist Report podcast. My name is Mike Figueredo, and this is the 97th episode of the program. Today is June 2nd, and before we get started, I want to send a huge shout out to all of these individuals for supporting us either through Patreon or PayPal. So this week we have Abby Roach, Ben Marsh, Brent Burkett, Christy Gardner, Dale Perrin, Doug Fultz, Douglas Kelbon, Eric Orozco, Exes, Jordan Aylard, Joseph Just, Judith Ferraris, Julia G, Kelly Cannon, Madam Pickles Cauldron, Maurice Harris, Michael A. Grabowski, Nils Monahan, Sheila Ellis, Susan Kopchik, Timothy D'Egidio, Travs Chula, Victoria Loon, Walrus Man, and William Craig Plunk. So thank you so much to all of these kind individuals. If you'd also like to support the show and join the independent progressive media revolution, you could do so by looking at the links down below or by going to patreon.com forward slash humanist report. So on today's episode, first, Trump announced his decision to unilaterally withdraw from the Paris Climate Agreement. Additionally, I'll talk about Elizabeth Warren's disappointing interview with TYT and why some Democrats are angry with Nina Turner. And on the subject of Nina Turner, I'll also talk about why some Democrats in Ohio are snubbing her when it comes to their upcoming gubernatorial run. I'll also discuss how Bernie Sanders grilled Trump's budget director. Now, I'll also talk about how dead people are apparently filing anti-net neutrality complaints with the FCC. I'll also talk about who Hillary Clinton is now blaming for her loss. Spoiler alert, it's still not herself and how Cory Booker was bought off by Trump's son-in-law, Jared Kushner. And finally, I will discuss the bombshell report in The Intercept that reveals how Dakota Access Pipeline protesters were treated like terrorists. So all of these topics will be discussed in today's episode. Unfortunately, I don't have an interview for you this week because they were rescheduled. So next week, you should have two, which will be cool. Uh, So let's go ahead and jump right into the news stories because... I've got a lot I want to say about these issues, so uh, enjoy the show. Our climate change denying commander-in-chief decided to make a unilateral decision, even against the will of some people within his own administration, to withdraw from the Paris Climate Agreement and basically doom humanity. I am fighting every day for the great people of this country. Therefore... In order to fulfill my solemn duty to protect America and its citizens, the United States will withdraw from the Paris Climate Accord Thank you. Thank you. But begin negotiations to re-enter either the Paris Accord or in really entirely new transaction on terms that are fair to the United States, its businesses, its workers, its people, its taxpayers. So we're getting out, but we will start to negotiate 
and we will see if we can make a deal that's fair. And if we can, that's great. And if we can't, that's fine. Oh, okay, so apparently he's going to renegotiate it. He's not just saying that to contain the inevitable political fallout because even some Republicans, including Mitt Romney, don't think he should pull out of the deal. He's totally going to renegotiate it, guys. You can trust him. He's never lied before, has he? <laughs> now, what he's contending here is bullshit. So he's saying that he's choosing to withdraw because he thinks the United States is unfairly targeted, seeing that the agreement imposes comparatively larger cutbacks with regard to our CO2 emissions. But the U.S. is one of the largest emitters of greenhouse gases in the world. So if you emit the most, then you've got to cut the most. That only makes sense. And the inherent issue with the Paris Climate Agreement is not that it's unfair on the United States. It's that it doesn't go far enough and impose stricter regulations on the United States because this deal only stipulates that the United States cut 26 to 28 percent of 2005 levels by 2025. But nonetheless, the United States is now joining the likes of Nicaragua and Syria, the only two other countries that have yet to sign onto this agreement because of Trump. Now, the legal issue is relatively complex because I don't know that he actually has the authority to unilaterally withdraw because the agreement is binding for four years. But if we don't meet our CO2 targets, then he's effectively pulling us out regardless. So it doesn't really matter. Now, there will be a plethora of very negative consequences that will, in fact, come to fruition because of Donald Trump doing this. And he's maintaining that, you know, he, he's pulling out because of the America first policy and uh, philosophy that he has. And, you know, this just this deal is too unfair to America. But in actuality, withdrawing from the Paris Climate Agreement will hurt Americans economically. So Wired explains, as for renewables, pulling out of Paris could cut the U.S. out of an explosively growing market. China, India and other growing economies have pledged billions towards renewables. The competition may have already begun. In April, Atlanta-based solar panel company Suniva filed for bankruptcy, citing an unfair advantage by Asian competitors, adding to the drama a Chinese wind company recently offered to teach U.S. coal workers how to be turbine technicians. Now, besides the economic consequences, there are obvious environmental consequences that will harm the planet. This will cause rising sea levels, ocean acidification, drought, extreme weather patterns, destruction of our coral reefs, melting glaciers that will threaten our fresh water supply. I mean, all of this will disrupt human lives and catalyze mass migration. Also, climate change is going to lead to mass extinction of countless species, including tigers, snow leopards, Asian rhinos, orangutans, African elephants, polar bears, among other creatures. And as the ice caps melt, it will leave us vulnerable to ancient diseases that we don't know how to combat. But that's not all. So according to the Washington Post, the link between climate and disease is most often identified through the spread of disease vectors, such as mosquitoes. As areas warm, habitats for insects, mosquitoes, and deer ticks, for example, expand, exposing new populations to new disease threats. As Maureen McKenna recently explained in the New York Times Magazine, the approximately one degree Celsius increase in average temperatures the planet has experienced is changing the numbers and distribution of the insect intermediaries that carry diseases to people. Most immediately, we could see a larger number of people at risk 
in the United States from Zika this summer as the 80s Egypti mosquito moves farther north, complicating the already challenging efforts to constrain the disease. But a second and less appreciated interaction between climate change and epidemics occurs when humans and animals are forced to compete for dwindling habitat and resources. The scenario behind Ebola's rise and global threat in 2014 illustrates this point. Climate change destroys habitats and stresses animal populations, such as the bat of West Africa, forcing them to hunt for food nearer to humans. Humans, likewise pressed by climate impacts, encroach more closely on animal habitats. While we cannot know that climate change was the cause of the specific interaction between bats and humans that is believed to have launched the Ebola outbreak in Guinea, we will see more of these interactions in the future and more epidemics as a result. Ebola demonstrates that even localized dislocation of people and animals can create global risk. Climate change is a threat multiplier for much broader dislocation, accelerating the complex factors that drive people from their homes. So even though there's going to be more diseases, Donald Trump actually called for a near 20% cut to the National Institutes of Health. So organizations that could help us combat the spread of these diseases the most, Donald Trump wants to cut their funding by nearly 20%. I mean, that's that's crippling. So he wants to leave us completely doomed. He wants to do nothing about climate change, which will accelerate all of these consequences I talked about, including more consequences that we can't even anticipate. This will increase the spread of diseases and the agencies like the Environmental Protection Agency, National Institutes of Health, that can help us combat climate change and mitigate climate change and adapt to climate change and combat the spread of harmful and killer diseases. He wants to cripple those agencies and organizations as well. So Donald Trump is dooming the species. He is dooming humanity. And it's not just Donald Trump. There are other Republicans, even though credit where credit is due, many Republicans came out against Donald Trump unilaterally withdrawing from the Paris Climate Agreement. Donald Trump, like many Republicans, supports this action because he doesn't believe in climate change. He thinks it's a hoax manufactured by the Chinese. He said this. So, Donald Trump is facilitating death and destruction right in line with Republicans. It's what they've always wanted. They've always pushed for wars. They've always been against climate change and protecting the environment. And Donald Trump is doing exactly what Republicans want him to do. And what's interesting to me is that there's this dynamic within the Trump administration that I didn't expect. So you have people like Rex Tillerson, uh, Jared Kushner, Ivanka Trump, all urging him to not uh, withdraw from the Paris Climate Agreement. And then you have people like Scott Pruitt, the EPA director, who, as the attorney general of his state, sued the EPA multiple times. You have him, as well as Steve Bannon, a white nationalist, encouraging Donald Trump to withdraw. So, I mean, he is listening to the most loony people within his, his administration. And I'm not going to give Rex Tillerson and Ivanka Trump and Jared Kushner any credit because they're complete warmongers. But on this issue, they're right. But Reason didn't win out in the end. And what we're seeing now is the United States failing their people, the United States failing humanity. And Donald Trump wasn't the first person to fail us on climate change, and he won't be the last. So I, I want to stress that climate change is in our hands. We have to be proactive. We have to do everything in our power to reduce our own carbon footprint because our elected officials don't care enough about this issue to make any meaningful changes. And when you look at the Paris Climate Agreement, as I've stated, it doesn't go far enough. So it's in our hands now. If we want the species to survive, we have to make drastic reductions to our own carbon footprint. So this, this story is incredibly disturbing. 
Since the FCC voted to roll back Title II net neutrality regulations, they've since received nearly 3 million comments, most of which are overwhelmingly in support of net neutrality. They don't want the FCC to change the internet. They like the current rules. Where net neutrality is the law of the land and the internet is free and open, and most people in the country support keeping the internet free and open, and support net neutrality. In fact, a poll by Morning Consult found that 61% either strongly or somewhat support net neutrality rules, while 18% either strongly or somewhat oppose them. Another 21% either did not know or had no opinion. So the takeaway in my opinion is that if you know what net neutrality is, then you are strongly inclined to support it because if you roll back net neutrality, then that will benefit nobody except Comcast, Verizon, AT&T, and internet service providers who can rip us off more now once net neutrality is killed. Now, the thing is that a lot of people don't actually know what net neutrality is, and I would even posit that the 18% that oppose net neutrality probably don't even know what the hell it is because Republicans like Donald Trump, they've been very misleading and just outright lie about net neutrality, saying that this is an overreach of power. But Obama isn't the one that signed the net neutrality rules into law. This was the FCC that voted on these rules after hearing millions of comments from the public. But the people who aren't ambivalent about net neutrality and actually care have submitted comments in support of net neutrality. However, out of the millions of comments recently submitted, there are clearly a substantial portion, thousands of which that are just completely fake. Now, one of my viewers named Anissa submitted two comments to the FCC. The first one was submitted on May 13th, and she strongly encouraged the FCC to support net neutrality. She then submitted a second comment in the same month, also explaining unequivocally how she does not approve of FCC chairman's agenda. So with these two comments, we know where Anissa stands. She supports net neutrality. And she is vehemently opposed to Ajit Pai's corporate agenda. But yet, on May 11th, curiously enough, Anissa realized that a phony comment was submitted on her behalf using a fake address. And this comment is against net neutrality. Now, it states the unprecedented regulatory power of the Obama administration imposed on the Internet is smothering innovation, damaging the American economy and obstructing job creation. I urge the Federal Communications Commission to end the bureaucratic regulatory overreach of the Internet known as Title II and restore the bipartisan light touch regulatory consensus that enabled the Internet to flourish for more than 20 years. The plan currently under consideration at the FCC to repeal Obama's Title II power grab is a positive step forward and will help to promote a truly free and open internet for everyone. Now, let me be clear. This is not Anissa's opinion. This is a comment filled with lies and talking points straight from the telecommunications industry. Keeping the internet free and open is the way it's been for 20 years. There was no change in 2015. The only change was to vote to solidify net neutrality and making it a utility regulated under, under Title II of the Communications Act of 1934, made net neutrality the law of the land forever. But since we see fake comments like this, which some refer to as Comcastro turf, many people are inclined to believe that internet service providers like Comcast or Verizon are actually behind this phenomenon because, I mean, this comment includes their talking points. Now, unfortunately, Anissa isn't the only person whose identity is being used to support the agenda of the likes of Comcast and Verizon and AT&T. So wrestling superstar John Cena apparently filed one comment on May 9th and 12 more on May 11th and conspicuously it includes the exact same language used in a 
Denise's false complaint word for word. Now note that most of these complaints filed under John Cena's name were filed on May 11th, which is the same day a false complaint was filed under Anissa's name. Now additionally, using the same exact wording and date, Barack Obama filed an anti-net neutrality comment, allegedly, where he lambasted the regulatory overreach of his own administration. That's hilarious. Also on May 8th, former FCC Chairman Tom Wheeler had a complaint filed on his behalf when he voted on the rules that Ajit Pai is currently trying to roll back. And another noteworthy mention that had FCC complaints filed on their behalf includes Jesus Christ using, again, the same talking points. Now, besides celebrities and biblical characters, there's even dead people that have had complaints filed on their behalf, and you guessed it, using talking points straight from internet service providers. So clearly, these comments are fake. There's thousands of them now. We really don't know how much there is, but we can anticipate that there is a thousand at least, probably more along the lines of 10,000. And what's most likely producing all of these comments are bots. I don't know where they're getting that information, uh, but they're getting people's names and they're filing false complaints on the behalf of people that actually support net neutrality. Now, BBC explains Fight for Future's complaint is signed by 14 people who say their details were used without permission to file anti-net neutrality views. The campaign group says that some of the comments were posted using the names and details of dead people. In their letter to the FCC, the group has called for an investigation into the fake comments and for the regulator to notify all those whose details have been used to post them. Fight for the Future says... It has heard from hundreds of people who have found comments posted in their names in favor of revoking net neutrality. So at this point, there's not evidence that directly implicates the likes of Comcast and Verizon. However, the situation is pretty suspicious seeing that these comments include talking points straight from the industry that Comcast and Verizon give to politicians to then lie and deceive the public with. So the FCC has got to look into this, but they have refused to uh, reply to any comments. Uh, BBC asked them for a comment. They didn't get back to them, and they're not taking this seriously. So what they're inevitably going to do is they're going to look at all of our comments, and they're going to see, oh, look, there's a bunch of pro-net neutrality comments. They're not going to go through and look at each individual name. They're just simply going to say, oh, this person was for and against it. Check and check. And what this is doing is this is AstroTurf. It's, it's making it seem as though the people are on the side of Verizon and Comcast when that's not the case. We already saw how Anissa cares deeply about this issue. She submitted two comments and then whatever bot that's being employed submitted a comment on her behalf that contradicts what she actually wants. So this is not acceptable and the FCC must look into this because during this period... And like any regulatory change, they're supposed to take in comments from the public. And if you allow these comments to go on and not investigate it or even delete them, then you are ensuring that the will of the people will in fact be violated. So this is incredibly troubling and we've got to get to the bottom of it. Anytime the FCC or Congress tries to attack the internet and attack net neutrality, Netflix has been one of the few companies that has been a consistent ally in the fight to keep the internet free and open. Now, this time, they've been conspicuously quiet, which is concerning to a lot of people because Netflix, even though it may seem as though at face value, what they say doesn't really mean much. Well, Netflix has a lot of legitimacy and people really love their service. So if they tell you that net neutrality is important for services like Netflix and Hulu, then that gives the fight for net neutrality a lot of steam. But they chose, for selfish reasons, to back down 
from the fight. So The Verge explains, speaking with Recode's Peter Kafka at the Code Conference today, Netflix CEO Reed Hastings explained his position on the current net neutrality debate that's happening at the FCC. Or, more to the point, he addressed the fact that he's been awfully quiet about it compared to how loudly he defended net neutrality in previous fights. It's not narrowly important to us because we're big enough to get the deals we want, Hastings said. It was a candid admission. No matter what the FCC decides to do with Title II, Netflix isn't worried about its ability to survive. Hastings says that Netflix is weighing in against changing the current rules, but that it's not our primary battle at this point and we don't have a special vulnerability to it. He does believe that smaller players are going to be harmed if net neutrality goes away, saying that where net neutrality is really important is the Netflix of 10 years ago. The Trump FCC is going to unwind the rules no matter what anybody says, Hastings argues. He might believe that net neutrality is important for society, but his company, Netflix, isn't in trouble, so it's not going to get into the fight. We had to carry the water when we were growing up and we were small, Hastings said. Other companies have to be on that leading edge. Wow, so that right there tells you everything you need to know about Netflix. Fuck you, I got mine. Because the quote was, it's not narrowly important to us because we're big enough to get the deals we want. Wow, this CEO who has a lot of power, whose company is generally very well liked, who's had exponential growth, is saying, you know what? Even though my company was able to grow because of net neutrality, I'm willing to have the door closed behind us because it's not going to affect us now. Well, that right there is just selfish. That's just selfish. And again, people, I know I'm going to get pushed back because people think, why are we caring about what Netflix has to say? But again, they've been a strong ally because they have legitimacy. They have a lot of sway. People like Netflix. People are gravitating towards Netflix. I love Netflix. And Netflix was the victim of Comcast throttling their bandwidth in 2014. And we use that as an example. I use that as an example as to what would happen if net neutrality went away. And now Netflix is throwing their hands up and saying, well, you know what? We'll say we're, we're in favor of net neutrality, but we're not going to really back any pony. We don't have a horse in this race. That's, that's really, really... Um, <laughs> disappointing to me to say the least there's already so much disinformation and propaganda being disseminated at the behest of the likes of verizon and comcast and charter and at&t so a lot of people don't even know what's at stake here they don't know that their internet will be destroyed forever if net neutrality is repealed they they just don't understand it so people are ambivalent because they don't really know how this will impact them. And a lot of people have reached out to me saying they just they don't know how to convince people and explain that neutrality. And here's what I'll do. I'll link to an article in the description box that talks about a Chrome extension that you can put on your browser that gives you a little bit of a hint as to what the internet would be like if net neutrality goes away. And it's not a pretty picture. It's not a pretty picture at all. We don't know all the consequences, but I'm sure that, you know, Verizon and Comcast are going to be pretty creative. It's not just going to be about them closing off certain sections of the internet and demanding that you pay more or trying to impose ransoms on smaller companies or throttling the bandwidth of smaller websites, much more bad things can happen. And to all the conservatives who are fighting liberals on this, I hope that your websites are the first to go and be throttled. I really do. I, I mean that. I hope that Breitbart and Infowars, they're already 
poison and toxic to political discourse. I hope they go first because we know they're going to be targeted. And when that time comes, we'll be saying, I told you so. So the issue is that the internet is... If net neutrality goes away, the internet won't be free and open for everyone. I mean, we're, we're not arguing just for liberal websites. We're arguing for everyone. So get on board and fight with us. Don't be stupid. Realize what's in your best interest and stop advocating for a position that will hurt you and that goes against your own self-interest and everyone's self-interest and that will hurt democracy. Imagine, you know, Bernie Sanders, he did so well in his campaign. Imagine what would happen if we didn't have net neutrality. Websites that push for Bernie Sanders would have been throttled or stifled if Comcast didn't like Bernie Sanders. And we know that they don't because Comcast owns a lot of these media networks or they're the parent company of these media networks that did propaganda for Hillary Clinton. So, I mean, think of how easily Comcast could control democracy if uh, net neutrality is destroyed. But I'm, I'm getting this sick feeling and i hope i'm wrong that net neutrality will in fact go away I, I just i see the effort not having much of an impact and i don't see the level of resistance that i saw last time in 2015 when tom wheeler tried to kill off net neutrality and i really really hope i'm wrong here but i i just have this really sick feeling and i think about it and it bothers me so much that net neutrality will be going away so please 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 fight don't be stupid file a complaint don't stick your head in the sand and you know pretend like liberals are just making a mountain out of a molehill that's not the case net neutrality is important it affects everyone conservatives and democrats alike the california senate just voted to pass a single-payer medicare for all bill this is a huge victory. Now, the Sacramento Bee reports the California Senate approved the measure Thursday aimed at establishing a government-run universal health care system in the Golden State. The system, which would replace Obamacare or what follows it under the Trump administration, would dramatically overhaul the health care market in California. Approved on a 23-14 to 14 vote, it now moves on to the Assembly. With President Trump's promise to abandon the Affordable Care Act as we know it, it leaves millions without access to care and Californians are once again tasked to lead, said Senator Ricardo Lara. Senate Bill 562 will finally enable California to cover all of its residents, creating a healthier and stronger state. Under the plan, government would renegotiate prices with doctors, hospitals, and other providers acting as the single payer for everyone's health care in the place of insurance companies. All Californians would receive coverage regardless of immigration status or ability to pay. So this is a gigantic step in the right direction. Now, of course, as we all could have predicted, this bill is being attacked by both Democrats and Republicans because currently there's no funding mechanism for this bill. However, there are many ways to fund the bill. So the Sacramento Bee continues, University of Amherst researchers estimated that it would cost $331 billion to pay for the plan, a sharp decrease from the $400 billion price tag detailed in a Senate analysis released in May. The nurses figure also represents an 18% decrease from current health care spending in the state. The nurses say the legislature can count on $225 billion and existing federal and state funding used for health coverage for low-income Californians, as well as other tax subsidies, to help pay the tab. The study suggests lawmakers also create two new taxes in the state, a 2.3% gross tax on business revenue above $2 million, and a 2.3% general sales tax on everything except housing, utilities, groceries, and other necessities. So there you have it. 
There are many ways to fund this bill, but because this version of the bill doesn't include a funding mechanism, people are throwing their hands up saying, oh, there's no funding mechanism. There's no way to pay for this. You know, this is pie in the sky. No, this, this isn't pie in the sky. This is real life. This bill passed. And yes, when they do include the funding mechanism, which they haven't agreed to yet, they will have to revote on this bill in the Senate. But the fact that it passed by 23 to 14 shows that they have wiggle room and California may have done something that will one day lead to nationwide single payer because I've said it once, I'll say it again. When states try something new, sometimes you see the domino effect. You see it spill over into other states. They said the same thing about marijuana, that it was harmful and that, you know, uh, children would be smoking more marijuana. But Colorado is raking in the dough right now. They legalized marijuana along with Washington State. Two years later, Oregon and Alaska fell. Two years later, California and Maine fell. So it just takes one state to get the ball rolling. And we already see another bill in New York working its way through the state legislature. So this to me is just one of the biggest victories we can get right now. At a time when Trump is withdrawing from the Paris Climate Agreement and net neutrality is under attack, to, to have this victory now, hang on to it. It feels good and we should feel good about this because this is the result of grassroots activists in California fighting the good fight. So if you are a California citizen, you know exactly what to do. You need to call your local elected officials and you've got to put pressure on them. Tell them to support this bill. Uh, the bill was SB 562. Uh, call the governor of California if you don't reside in the state of California because this is something that... This isn't just about California. This is about the United States of America. A victory for California with respect to Medicare for All is a victory for every single state. Because if California gets Medicare for All, Oregon might get it two years later. And then Washington, then New York. So again, if we really want to save lives and end the healthcare debate forever, this is the way to go. So I want to send a huge shout out and thank you to Senator Lara in the state of California because what he did was courageous. He fought for this. He pushed it. And to anyone that voted in favor of this bill, you are an American hero. I don't know what your politics are besides this, but to vote for this makes you a hero. This will save lives and it's the right thing to do. So this is, this is phenomenal news. Th this is monumental. The Democratic Party is looking to gubernatorial races in 2018 as a means of potentially regaining power across the country. And Ohio is one state that they're focused on because they see this as a window of opportunity for a Democrat to get in and take over the executive branch in Ohio. Now, the first person that I think about when Ohio comes to mind, obviously, is Nina Turner. She is a very popular former state senator from Ohio. And as you all know, she was Bernie Sanders' most ardent surrogate. And she's progressive on literally every issue I can think of. And Nina Turner is so popular that there's actually a large portion of the country that wants her to run for president in 2020, myself included. Now, as a result, powerful Democrats should be doing everything in their power to court Nina Turner, because at this point, we don't necessarily know if she wants to jump in the gubernatorial race in 2018. But Democrats should be begging her to run in 2018 because she would be a phenomenal candidate. But some powerful Democrats in the state aren't really interested in Nina Turner. So, for example, former Governor Ted Strickland and Hamilton County Democratic Party Chairman Tim Burke decided that they actually want to recruit someone else. So that's obviously troubling to me because if you want a good shot at winning, then you should put up a strong progressive candidate like Nina Turner 
However, the problem isn't just that they're snubbing Nina Turner, it's who they're trying to recruit and who they're snubbing Nina Turner for. So the person who they want to be the next governor of Ohio is not Nina Turner. It's the host of this classy television show. What street corner can I find you on? guy <laughs> our producers have decided that you will take us into the break we'll be right back with Jerry's final thoughts no god no god please no I don't even know what to say <laughs> again we have a story where I'm just left utterly speechless I don't know whether or not it's more appropriate to laugh or cry at this story. They say they see Nina Turner, someone who is progressive, someone who actually cares about the people of Ohio. And they say, I don't want that person. I don't want Nina Turner. I want Jerry Springer, the host of the Jerry Springer show. <laughs> I'm laughing now, but in like 10 minutes, I'm going to be bawling my eyes out. <laughs> So, Business Insider explains influential Ohio Democrats are pushing former Cincinnati mayor and daytime TV host Jerry Springer to run for Ohio governor in 2018. More than half a dozen Democrats familiar with the race told Business Insider. Many said Springer, who sought the Democratic nomination for governor of Ohio in 1982 and remains active in state politics, could be a good fit for the current political climate. Springer's proponents have highlighted his ability in the era of President Donald Trump to provide his own funding for a campaign and to connect with working class voters familiar with his television show and history in Ohio politics. So prominent Democrats in Ohio have reached out to Jerry Springer. Uh, he has since met with Democratic Party leaders in Ohio. And Jerry Springer actually is open to the idea of running for governor. This was the Democratic Party's doing. It's almost as if they don't want to win. It's as if they'd rather lose with a buffoon or someone who's corrupt, a neoliberal warmonger like Hillary Clinton, for example, than win with a progressive like Bernie Sanders or Nina Turner. And this just proves it. I mean, if we needed any indication that the Democratic Party is completely lost, this is it. They're snubbing Nina Turner for Jerry Springer, host of the infamous Jerry Springer show. I... I Wow. Wow. My, my head is about to pop off my body. Like, I, I don't know what to say about this. Jerry Springer. I mean, we already know that Democrats are trying to recruit their own bombastic, idiotic billionaire like Mark Cuban to run against Trump in 2020. But to stoop to this level and actually snub a progressive like Nina Turner, who is a progressive lying i mean she she's one of the best people in the country in terms of progressive issues uh, i respect her more than anyone i think in politics today they're snubbing nina turner for jerry springer jerry springer jerry springer 
the host of the Jerry Springer show. Uh, I keep saying it out loud because it's unbelievable to me. And, you know, what I'm trying to say this, I'm trying to convince myself that this isn't an episode of The Twilight Zone. This is reality. This is not satirical. This is not The Onion. This is a real article talking about how Democratic Party leaders in Ohio are making an active effort to recruit Jerry Springer when they have someone like Nina Turner who would be a phenomenal governor. Jesus Christ. The Democratic Party is so far gone, so hopeless, that this is comical. I don't even know how else to describe the situation. This is literally comical. It's funny to me. It's so stupid. But this is real life. They want Jerry Springer. I'm not familiar with Jerry Springer's politics. Um, but I know that he had a fake show where actors and actresses would come on and share their fake stories, and they want that person instead of Nina Turner, someone who is actually genuine, who cares about the people. Despicable. I don't, I don't know what else to say. That's just disgusting to me. On last week's episode, I talked about an internal debate that's happening within the Democratic Party, and currently they're focused on what should be the cornerstone of their messaging in 2018. Now you have a large contingent, about half of the party, who wants to focus on Russia. Now I kind of went on a rant last week because when there's issues like net neutrality, Medicare for all, the fight for 15, climate change, I mean, I, I just don't understand how... Of all things, even if you care about this issue and you think it's important, how Russia could be more salient than all of those issues that actually impact our lives. But thankfully, there was a CNN panel recently where they talked about Russia and Nina Turner was included. And basically, she said everything that was on my heart with respect to this issue. No one in Ohio is asking about Russia. I mean, we have to deal with this. We definitely have to deal with this. It's on the minds of the American people. But if you want to know what people in Ohio, they want to know about jobs. They want to know about their children. I was just in California where California folks, especially the, the national nurses, pushing for healthy California, uh, single payer, Medi Medicare for all kinds of things. Um, I talked to a boomer, a baby boomer, who African-American baby, bo baby boomer who lives right here in D.C. Russia is not in his top five. He believes that both parties are failing. I talked to a Gen Xer, uh, a white male who's in the union. He wants third party. We are losing. The president should be concerned about this. All Americans should be concerned about this. But if, I, if we were to go to Flint, then they wouldn't ask you about Russia and Jared Kushner. They want to know how they're going to get some clean water and why 8,000 people are about to lose their homes. We are preoccupied with this. It's not that this is not important. Yep. But everyday Americans are being left behind because it's Russia, Russia, Russia. Do we need all 535 members of the Congress to deal with Russia? Can some of them deal with some domestic issues? Let me ask you about a former member of Congress, your former boss. So what Nina Turner said right there is probably one of the most reasonable things I've ever heard. She said that Americans are getting left behind while the media and the party focuses on Russia, 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 Russia. That's exactly correct. Now, the reason why I included those extra two seconds at the end of the clip there is because Dana Bash quickly ignored what she said and went to a different panelist to ask him a completely different question. So, I mean, everything that Nina Turner said went in one ear and out the other because they just weren't hearing it. I mean, she brought Nina Turner on to talk about Russia, and uh, Nina Turner didn't want to talk about Russia. She, she wanted to talk about the real issues, and everything that she said 
was important. But it's frustrating that the substance of what Nina Turner said, I mean, the point she was trying to make, which is really important, it wasn't even considered. Now, this is just so frustrating to me because, I, as I've stated before, the Russia issue is something that I couldn't care less about. I just don't care. I don't think that releasing emails is tantamount to election meddling or an election hack, as some people like to call it. Now, if we end up finding out that Trump literally worked with Russians to hack voting booths, then that's an entirely different story. I mean, but the U.S. Senate Intelligence Report doesn't conclude that. So we're talking about emails. That's not nefarious. <laughs> emails are not nefarious. I don't consider that election meddling. I mean, the United States meddles in elections all the time. We endorse uh, candidates in foreign elections, we certainly state our preference. We've literally undermined elections in Latin America and abroad. We've installed dictators in democratic countries. So for us to be crying about election meddling, it's just so hypocritical and ironic to me. And again, I, I just find this so ridiculous because we're talking about how using Hillary Clinton's own words against her is somehow foreign interference when people didn't like her before 2016. This isn't the first time that she lost an election. And 2016 isn't the first time, certainly, that Democrats lost an election. They lost the Senate in 2014. They lost the House in 2010. Hillary Clinton lost to Barack Obama in 2008. But Democrats are using Russia as a distraction from the real problems that plague the party because if they can prove that Russia did it, then that means the party doesn't have to reform at all. They can continue with business as usual. But the problem is that Russia doesn't change the fact that the Democratic Party's approval rating in some polls is comparable to Trump's, nor does it change the fact that people are leaving the party in record numbers and the number of independents has surged over the last couple of years because of their incompetence. So the Democratic Party can only use Russia as a means of avoiding introspection for so long before it comes back and bites them in the ass yet again, but currently, if they can distract us with Russia long enough, then they think that they can take back power again. And by doing that, it's super convenient for them because they don't actually have to put forward a policy that would offend their donors, like Medicare for All. I mean, a majority of the country, the overwhelming majority of their base supports Medicare for All, and they don't want to get behind that because there are many Democrats who are bankrolled by the health insurance industry. So if they actually take a stand and be progressive, then they would offend donors and lose millions of dollars in uh, political donations. So they don't want to do that. They don't want to change. So they're using Russia as this convenient narrative to push because it's something that is politically expedient for them to do so. If you want to go after Donald Trump, then go after his business dealings, not just in Russia, but also in Saudi Arabia and other countries, and talk about how he's using his influence as president to enrich himself personally. But the thing about this story is that I don't have the winning argument, admittedly, because most people agree with the Russian hysteria. It, just when you go by political polls, people like this story. They're captivated by it because it's something that is a nice distraction. And it allows us to forget about the fact that millions of people are still dying or going bankrupt because of their health insurance. It, it ignores, it allows you to ignore the fact and kind of escape reality and not think about how millennials are so overwhelmed with student loan debt that they can't buy a house, they can't buy cars. But the thing is that Nina Turner, because she had the audacity to be reasonable, she was criticized. Now, these aren't strong criticisms from any mainstream media figures. I mean, there was one in media that was a more tepid, implicit criticism. But nonetheless, you know, they were still critical of her. So a journalist from Mediaite reports the story in the following way. They state, according to a former Ohio Democratic lawmaker and fervent Bernie Sanders supporter, everyday voters in her home state 
are just not talking about the biggest news story in the country right now. While the average voters Turner is talking to on the streets apparently aren't asking or discussing the whole Russia thing. Recent polls do indicate, however, that the issue seems to be a very concerning topic for most of the public. Per a morning consult slash Politico survey, 55% of registered voters and 83% of Democrats say they are nervous about the country's future due to the Russian controversies. So they state here that this is the biggest news story in the country right now. Well, here's the thing about that. Benghazi at one point in time was also the biggest news story in the country, but that didn't mean that it should have overshadowed the real issues that real Americans are dealing with. And let's be honest here, the real reason why voters are concerned with this is because the media covers it non-stop. And by repeatedly covering a topic, they can raise the salience of an issue in people's minds. It's called manufacturing consent, and this is not me saying this. This is backed up by data that's decades old that confirms that the media does, in fact, have the ability to make us think certain issues are more important than they really are. And furthermore, this is a huge issue because of the way that the Democratic Party has talked about it. They've been incredibly mis misleading. Uh, the mainstream media has been incredibly misleading. They typically refer to this as an election hack when releasing emails is not tantamount to an election hack or election meddling. And even Elizabeth Warren said recently on the Young Turks that Russia hacked, quote, American systems. Now, what this implies is something much more nefarious went on. It implies that Russia hacked voting machines, but that's not what happened. In fact, the U.S. Senate intelligence report that the Democratic Party touts on much states clearly that DHS assesses that the types of systems Russian actors targeted or compromised were not involved in vote tallying, yet, according to a YouGov poll, 50% of Clinton voters believe Russia tampered with vote tallies to help Donald Trump. That is directly the result of lies and obfuscation, and Democrats just straight up misleading their base, and it's not acceptable. Now, this wasn't the only attack, and again, this was a more tepid criticism of Nina Turner, but there was more criticisms of Nina Turner. One from the Daily Kos, which reads, Nina Turner is poison for the Democratic Party. Now, I'm not even 100% sure that this isn't satirical, but I mean, there's more. So when you go to Twitter, some people are saying, look how often Nina Turner appears on Russia Today, the state propaganda network for Putin. Another one says, why are Bernie supporters and Nina Turner so anxious to get off topic of Russia? How did Burns get so rich? Why is his bud Ed Schultz on RT? Well, we're anxious to get off the topic because we don't give a shit and there are more important issues. Why are you so anxious to get off the topic of climate change and Medicare for all? Another tweet here reads, No, Nina Turner, we don't need to move on from Russia. Remember, you couldn't move on and support Hillary. Bernie did. And another one here says, what a fucking hypocrite. Nina Turner is a Democrat who spewed lies about Democrats while working with a fake Democrat aligned with Russia. Yes, Bernie Sanders was aligned with Russia. That's why he's currently taking criticism for towing the party line when it comes to Russia. So, I mean, the fact that people were outraged and triggered by what Nina Turner said, it's preposterous to me. She said something that's reasonable. She said we need to focus on the real issues, and that's exactly what we need to be doing. But it seems as though there's such a large contingent in the party, in the country, that believes that Russia, I mean, they, they hacked into voting booths. So, of course, they care more about this issue. But Russia didn't hack into voting booths. Russia allegedly released emails from the DNC and John Podesta that exposed Hillary Clinton's own words. And those emails are 100% authentic. So, that's not what 
<laughs> what you would refer to as election hacking. I, I, I mean, you can, but it doesn't make sense to me. But I mean, even if you if you want to focus on Russia, can you not at least see the value in what she's stating here? We need to focus on the real issues. Focusing on Russia isn't going to stop people from dying without health insurance. It's not going to relieve students of our student loan debt. So she's only saying the most reasonable thing, but in the country where basically left is right and up is down, if you say something reasonable, you'll be attacked and people will speculate whether or not you're a Kremlin shill. It's a sad state of affairs in American politics. Elizabeth Warren recently appeared on The Young Turks for an interview with Cenk Uygur, presumably to start rebuilding some of the bridges that she burned in 2016 ahead of what could be a 2020 presidential run. Now, the thing about Elizabeth Warren is that I've kind of put all of her missteps and political miscalculations in a box and I've stored that box in the very back of my mind because I can put that aside and forget about them, even though they're still there. But I can I can actually appreciate the fact that her record is so progressive and try to ignore those things. But after I saw this interview, I mean, if this really was an attempt for her to extend an olive branch to progressives, then I think she did an awful job at doing so. And really, all of the feelings that I felt during the primary of betrayal, they, they just came bubbling back up again. And even though I've tried to suppress them, you know, over the course of the last couple of months, because Elizabeth Warren, again, she is progressive, her record speaks for itself, this interview really illustrated just how out of touch she is and that she's nowhere near as progressive as Bernie Sanders. And I think in many ways, it showed that she's not willing to stand up against the betrayals of her own party, and that's really frustrating to me. Now, the thing about the interview is that I think that Jen Uger did a great job. He asked all the questions I hoped that he would ask, and what you'll see is that even under a minimal amount of scrutiny, Elizabeth Warren bungled any chance she had at redemption, and again, this interview could have been a great chance for her to repair the relationship that she strained during the primaries. So first of all, Jeng asked her about money in politics and how certain politicians are beholden to their donors. And they both kind of discussed the effect of money on politics. And she railed against Republicans, and rightly so. However, Jeng asked her about Democrats who are also beholden to their donors. And Joe Manchin was named. And Elizabeth Warren defended Joe Manchin. I want to make a spirited defense that there are folks like Joe Manchin, he works hard on issues that affect working people in West Virginia. Um, we just, he rounded up the whole Democratic caucus, and I give him complete credit for this, to get the US government to move in and make good on uh, the miners' health insurance. I've worked with all of my colleagues, and shoot, are there places where I don't agree with them? You bet. Are there places I have fought with them? Yes, there have, and places I will continue to fight with them. But there are also places where they've stood up for hardworking families where we couldn't get one Republican to stand with us, not one. So according to Elizabeth Warren, when Republicans show that they're beholden to their donors, that's unacceptable and she will rail against them. However, if Democrats are just as easily bought and paid for by large multinational corporations like Joe Manchin, then Elizabeth Warren will literally come to their defense. And in fact, she made a spirited defense of Joe Manchin. But the problem is that I know Elizabeth Warren isn't even buying what she's selling because all she could name was one issue that he was progressive on, extending health care to co-workers. 
how progressive Elizabeth Warren, but you see the problem is on almost every single other issue, he sides more with Republicans than Democrats. And of course, I mean, she couldn't really provide a meaningful defense of Joe Manchin, so she quickly pivoted to Republicans. And you'll see that this is a strategy that she used consistently throughout the course of the interview. Yes, Elizabeth, we know that the Republican Party is terrible, which is why we're putting so much pressure on Democrats because we want a real alternative that's politically viable. We want a party that will win that's not corrupt. So that's why we are doing everything we can to reform the Democratic Party and we're trying to drag them into the future in a progressive direction, even though they're kicking and, sh and screaming and resisting us at every step of the way. So what you're doing is you're taking that D that's in front of his name and you're saying that that's more important than anything else about about Joe Manchin and basically the implication here is that she wouldn't even support a primary challenger so we have someone running against him Paula Swearingen who is exponentially more progressive than Joe Manchin but she decided to defend Joe Manchin it makes absolutely no sense to me now Jenk asked her why she refused to endorse Bernie Sanders during the primary and her answer was just nauseating why not back him during the 2016 primaries if you two are the closest aligned in policy so look um, I think that that our our primary I thought was a good thing, uh, and uh, I thought it was good that Bernie was out there, that Hillary was out there. They were giving two different visions. They were out there through all the states. I thought it put both energy on our side. I'll tell you something else. I thought it did. It made me proud to be a Democrat. You know, while the Republicans were doing their clown car thing. You know, with who was going to be voted off the island, and then of course ended up with a reality star uh, as their as their standard bearer. I was proud of what Democrats were out there talking about. I thought it was the right thing to do. Um, and in the end, uh, when uh, uh, when it was time, I went out there and and fought once it was resolved uh, to try to get Hillary elected, and I would have done the same for Bernie, no doubt about it. Do you get why some progressives are still mad about that? That that Massachusetts was decided by 1.3 points, Iowa was decided by 0.3. That perhaps you could have helped him put a put him over the top, and then he would have won Iowa, New Hampshire, Look, Massachusetts. And there are people who see it the other way. Yeah, you know, for me, I think about it this way: there is nothing the Republicans would love better than for us to stand around and shoot at each other. Over and relitigate what happened in 2016. I look at what's happening in Washington right now. I look at what Donald Trump wants to do on health care and the Republican majority in Congress wants to do. I look at this new budget they've put out. I look at what's happening right now in the connections with Russia. And I say, God, we got to get focused here. And we got to focus on what Donald Trump is going to do in the next 24 hours, the next week, the next month. That's, that's where we need our energy. I don't even know what to say about that. Elizabeth Warren, the second most progressive senator in the country. She literally stated here, you heard her correctly, that she was proud of the primary. She's referring to the primary where the chairwoman of her party was forced to resign in disgrace because she was caught rigging the primary against Bernie Sanders. You were proud of that, Elizabeth Warren? You're proud of the way that the party conducted themselves? With the way that superdelegates 
demoralized Bernie Sanders supporters with the way that the DNC colluded with Hillary Clinton before anyone announced their campaigns to move up red states ahead on the primary schedule, knowing that Hillary Clinton is more conservative and would probably cultivate an early lead. I mean, you're, you're proud of that, Elizabeth Warren? Really? You're proud of that? Well, if you're proud of that, then you should be ashamed of yourself because that primary was a disgrace and that primary is exclusively why millions more people decided to leave the Democratic Party, myself included. And almost immediately, she pivoted to Republicans yet again, and she said, there's nothing the Republicans would love better than for us to stand around and shoot at each other and relitigate what happened in 2016, then continues to talk about the Republicans and tells us to look at what they're doing. And she says, God, we've got to get focused here. And we got to focus on what Donald Trump is going to do in the next 24 hours, in the next week, in the next month. So in other words, ignore our faults because we're not as bad as Republicans. Look away from what we're doing and how we are betraying our base because the Republicans are so bad. We're not as shitty as Republicans, even though we're pretty bad, but so long as we're, you know, just marginally better than Republicans, you should be distracted by Donald Trump and what the Republicans are doing. That's exactly what she's saying, and it's a cop-out. It's a complete and utter cop-out. Saying that the Republicans are bad, I mean, you're going after the low-hanging fruit here. That's not anything that is courageous to say. We all know they're bad, but what really takes courage is for you to stand up against your own party and how they betray the base. And Elizabeth Warren once was courageous enough to do this. I mean, she went after Obama for numerous reasons. I mean, she was against him on the TPP. What happened to Elizabeth Warren? Why are you no longer willing to call out people in your own party? It doesn't make sense to me. Now, after Jenk gave her not one, but two chances to answer the question, she still decided to pivot to Republicans. Now, he then gave her another chance, but this time to indicate whether or not she'll actually take a stand in 2020 and endorse Bernie Sanders if he does decide to run. And I'll bet that you can guess her answer before I even show you the clip. She dodged the question and then quickly pivoted to Republicans. If you don't run, do you think this time around uh, that you will have a more forceful opinion in the primaries? Because that is when people will decide who are standard bearers. Their standard bearer is the reality show star. Yeah. And our standard bearer will either be a progressive or someone who is more beholden to donors yeah. or someone in between. So if, for example, Bernie Sanders were to run again, if you're not running, would you support him? You know, I don't know where we'll be in 2020. It's a it's a long time off, but I don't know where we'll be in 2020. I don't think Bernie knows where we'll be in 2020. So I don't know what Bernie's gonna do. And I don't, I don't wanna be in a position to push Bernie to do anything. What I see right now really is that as Democrats, as progressives, we can't make politics a once every four year thing. It has got to be an everyday thing. Donald Trump has not been in office, what, 150 days yet? It's, it's less than that. He's got a long, long time to go, or at least the Republicans do, Republican majority in the House, Republican majority in the Senate. The way I see it is, man, we gotta be all in on the fights that are occurring right now, the things they're doing right now. So Elizabeth Warren, whatever backbone I thought she had, it's, it's just gone. I mean, she stayed silent during the primaries and I don't know what happened. She used to be so courageous and she no longer has a spine. She's no longer willing to take an issue and stand up because it just might not be politically expedient enough for her. And that's so 
that's so harmful to her chances in 2020 because what she used to be viewed as was a maverick, as someone who would stand up for progressives no matter what. But she's showing us that she has the capacity to be a coward. Now, Jenk asked her a question that I think is really important. So he asked her what issues the Democratic Party should focus on in 2018. And her answer is just downright unacceptable to me. Tell me in 2018, what are the issues that the Democrats should focus on? What do you think are not only important, but winning political issues? So look, the Russia thing, we're, we're gonna have to see how this one resolves. But uh, right now, the idea that there is a connection between a foreign government that we know, our intelligence agencies have told us, hacked into American systems to influence the outcome of the 2016 election. I mean, that's just, that's stunning. So, and, and right now, Republicans won't even talk openly about the fact that it happened, much less what it is that we need to do to get to the bottom of an investigation about it and make sure it never, ever, ever happens again. I think that's gonna be a, a really important and where that develops about the relationship between Russia, the Trump campaign, and Donald Trump. So out of all the issues that we're fighting for, Medicare for all, net neutrality, climate change, the fight for 15, the first thing that came out of her mouth was, quote, the Russia thing. I don't even know what to say. I don't think I've ever been this disappointed in Elizabeth Warren. She's the one senator, one of two actually, that would just consistently focus on policy substance. And now, she thinks Russia is more important than student loan relief or Medicare for all. Un-fucking-believable. And this is what she said. She said, Russia hacked into American systems to influence the outcome of the 2016 election. That's stunning. Okay, they, quote, hacked into American systems. So are you literally implying now, Elizabeth, that they hacked into voting booths? Because if so, then you're just outright wrong. And that claim would be stunning. But you and I both know that that's not what she was talking about. She was talking about an alleged hack into the DNC and John Podesta's emails. But she didn't even say emails. When she was talking about Russia, the word emails didn't even come out of her mouth. And she said that they hacked into, quote, American systems because by saying Russia released Hillary Clinton's own words via email and exposed the Democratic Party's own corruption, that doesn't sound as persuasive as saying that Russia literally hacked into, quote, American systems, and what she's saying even contradicts the U.S. Senate intelligence report that Democrats tout so much, which concluded, quote, DHS assesses that the types of systems Russian actors targeted or compromised were not involved in vote tallying. So not only is her rhetoric misleading, but it's actually very irresponsible because what she's claiming or certainly implying happened is huge. If Russia hacked into our election systems, that's a gigantic story and I'd be right there fighting alongside you, but that's not what happened. What happened was they allegedly released emails. That's not the same thing as hacking into our voting booths. What actually happened is not tantamount to election meddling. And the thing about Elizabeth Warren is that she states that she wants to make sure that foreign interference into our election, quote, never, ever, ever happens again. However, I find it strange that if she's so concerned with foreign interference into our elections, 
she hasn't taken the time to denounce the fact that Saudi Arabia recently registered 120 new lobbyists since 2015, and since they upped their influence, Trump approved one of the largest weapons deals in American history. I haven't seen Elizabeth Warren denounce the $14.2 million that the United Arab Emirates spent to influence our government in 2013, or the millions of dollars that Morocco, Azerbaijan, or Israel spent and still continue to spend lobbying American politicians. I mean, where's the outrage? And if she's unequivocally against foreign interference in elections and democratic integrity, why hasn't she condemned President Obama's endorsement in the French election for Macron? And if you think that that example is unfair, then I've got another one for you. Bill Clinton literally tried to undermine a Russian election in 1996 to secure Boris Yeltsin's re-election. As Jacobin reports, the public record shows clear points of direct American coordination, collusion, and action in Yeltsin's favor. Meanwhile, the U.S. Senate intelligence report found that the Russian government developed a clear preference for President-elect Trump. Ooh, what a scandal. Russia apparently didn't get the memo that they're not allowed to express preferences. Only we are. If our leaders express that they want a certain election to go a certain way, there's no scandal there. But if someone dares to even hint that they might have a preference in our election, then that's just this huge scandal. It's a big deal. In fact, we're so touchy in America about election interference. If you just use Hillary Clinton's own words against her by releasing emails that she wrote, well, we're even willing to go so far as to argue that that's tantamount to election rigging. That, my friends, is what I like to call insanity. It's insanity. Releasing emails is not tantamount to election rigging, and we interfere with elections all the time. I mean, look at South America. I think they'd have something to say about election interference. But Elizabeth Warren is choosing to take the politically expedient route and attack Donald Trump on something that's easy, That's that you know the media wants them to talk about because they can sensationalize that and make lots of money. Look at uh, Rachel Maddow. I mean, her ratings are through the roof. So rather than focusing on the issues that impact our lives, Elizabeth Warren is choosing to be a coward yet again. So, you know, to wrap this up, this interview was a disaster for Elizabeth Warren. You went on The Young Turks, which is the largest progressive news show, and you didn't expect that you would get pushback by espousing Democratic Party talking points that we all hate. I mean, it's just absurd to me. I was so disappointed in Elizabeth Warren. I mean, she went down a few points again in my mind in spite of the fact that I'm trying to do everything I can to give her the benefit of the doubt, but she's making that so impossible. So Elizabeth Warren, if you really want to run for president in 2020 and get the support of progressives, then you've actually got to be progressive and stop being a coward. Cory Booker is a corporate Democrat that has and always will be beholden to his donors 100% because what he cares about is bolstering his own power and since really, really rich people are able to help him get more power and help him get elected by giving him financial contributions for his campaigns, then Cory Booker is going to be loyal to those people because he puts his personal power above policy. And with the emergence of recent controversy surrounding Jared Kushner, Cory Booker showed that his donors did in fact 
make a good investment by choosing to finance his campaign. So according to International Business Times, New Jersey Democratic Senator Cory Booker, a potential 2020 White House contender and recipient of major campaign contributions from Jared Kushner and others in the Kushner family, declined to endorse his party's call for the White House to revoke the security clearance of the president's son-in-law. The Democratic National Committee has called for Kushner's security clearance to be revoked after reports that he sought to set up back-channel communications with Russian officials. Similarly, Representative Adam Schiff, the senior Democrat on the House Intelligence Committee, said Kushner's security credentials should be reviewed. Booker refused to support those calls during an interview with CNN Sunday. Asked if he supports revoking Kushner's security clearance, the New Jersey senator said, I think we need to first get to the bottom of it. He needs to answer for what was happening at the time. It raises very serious concerns for me, and that could be a potential outcome that I seek. But I want to understand at least hear from Jared Kushner, as well as the administration, about what was exactly going on there. Booker also pushed back against those calling for Trump's impeachment, saying, I'm not going to rush to impeachment. Kushner and other donors affiliated with Kushner delivered more than 41000 to Booker's Senate campaign in 2013, according to data compiled by PoliticalMoneyLine.com. Politico reported that Ivanka Trump hosted a fundraiser for Booker during that election. In 2009, Jared Kushner gave $20,000 to Booker's Newark mayoral ticket. Booker team for Newark. New Jersey campaign finance records show that year Booker attended the wedding of Kushner and Ivanka Trump. Booker has in the past made headlines taking stances at odds with others in his party. During the 2012 election, for instance, Booker defended the private equity industry and slammed Barack Obama's campaign for attacking then-Republican nominee Mitt Romney's private equity firm, Bain Capital. More recently, Booker cast a pivotal vote against Democratic legislation to allow Americans to buy lower-priced prescription drugs from Canada. So this story is very interesting to me because every aspect about it is completely ridiculous because when you look at the Jared Kushner component, he's not qualified to be an advisor to Donald Trump to begin with. So when you see that this sleazeball is setting up back-channel communications with Russian officials, presumably to enrich himself with business interests that he has in Russia, that's a problem. I mean, I don't care what country he establishes back-channel relationships with. We know he's doing it because there's money to be made, and that's a form of corruption that should not be tolerated. And he also used his influence in the past to cash in with regard to Chinese business deals. So, I mean, as an advisor to the president, he is getting very, very rich. So, of course, we should look into Jared Kushner's corruption. That's not even a question for me. He got his job as a result of nepotism. He's married to Donald Trump's daughter. So, the fact that he's using his powerful position to enrich himself in not just Russia, but China and across the world, it makes me so angry. That is what I like to call elitism right there. That's the oligarchy right there. So, the fact that Cory Booker doesn't want to even look into Jared Kushner or revoke his security uh, clearance... It shows that Cory Booker only looks out for his donors, and he's loyal to the people that donated to his campaigns. Now, Cory Booker also doesn't want to even entertain the idea of impeaching Donald Trump, which is odd to me because Donald Trump has given us more than enough. When Donald Trump was sworn in on day one, he was in violation of the Emoluments Clause, and there may even be evidence that he obstructed justice. So you have more than enough to at least consider talking about maybe impeaching Donald Trump, but Cory Booker doesn't even want to entertain the idea. And this is because he is loyal to his donors. And since Donald Trump is related to Jared Kushner and Ivanka Trump and Cory Booker is friends with them, 
and Cory Booker makes money from them and is able to get elected because of them, Cory Booker does not want to impeach Donald Trump. And also, he just straight up loves Donald Trump, not because Donald Trump, you know, has certain policies that Cory Booker may agree or disagree with. It's because Cory Booker is drawn to wealth and money and power because that's how he wants to be. He's envious of Donald Trump and he loves Donald Trump. And that's something that's a fact. You don't have to take my word for it. You can take Cory Booker's own words for it. I love Donald Trump. I know his kids. I know his family. They're good. The, the children, especially good people. I love you, Donald. I pray for you. Donald Trump. Gotcha, bitch! Now, I said this once on Twitter, but I want to kind of reiterate this sentiment. That video will make a phenomenal ad against Cory Booker in 2020 because we all know he's trying to run. He's currently posturing to run. He's going to run. He's going to run. If he doesn't run, I would be surprised. Uh, but he's going to try to run and best believe that progressives will come out in droves to fight and vote against him because he's someone who isn't part of the resistance like he claims. He's someone who needs to be resisted because he's a bought-off corporate puppet and he only likes the wealthy and the elites and he only does policy that benefits them because Cory Booker is thinking about Cory Booker. If you cater to the elites, then they might donate to your campaign and help you get elected. So, he sees this as, you know, he, he has nothing to gain by actually representing progressives and poor people and, you know, voting so that way we can import our drugs from Canada. Cory Booker is doing things that will help himself get elected. And that is unacceptable. So Cory Booker is a loser. If in some bizarro universe that he actually runs and becomes the Democratic Party nominee, good luck getting progressives on board, Cory, because we know that you only represent your donors and not us. So I already know that I am super late to the party on this topic. I'm typically late to most issues. It's kind of a disadvantage when you only do a podcast once a once a week. But, you know, nonetheless, I couldn't not talk about this because Bernie Sanders returned to his normal badass self and I, I couldn't be more happy. I think that what he did was fantastic. So last week on the show, I told you about Donald Trump's unusually cruel budget where he basically proposes cuts to programs that help out the poor and simultaneously he's pushing for tax breaks for himself and his friends so it's just a pro-oligarchic budget that would exacerbate income and wealth inequality and it's wrong so they had a senate hearing for this new budget and bernie sanders had the opportunity to question trump's budget director mick mulvaney and it was just so great so first of all Bernie Sanders, before he even got into an exchange with Mick Mulvaney, because this is what typically happens, he just threw a bunch of questions at Mick uh, and basically went on a mini rant. So it was amazing. So let's watch and then uh, we'll discuss the second portion. Mr. Mulvaney, as you know, the United States today has more income and wealth inequality than any major country on earth. Top one-tenth of one percent now owns almost as much wealth as the bottom 90 percent. 52% of all new income today is going to the top 1%. But your budget thinks that it is good public policy to provide $52 billion in tax breaks to the wealthiest family in this country, a family already worth $128 billion. You think that a family like the Walton family, where one guy there owns four Ferraris and one Maserati, that are worth more than $65 million are just in desperate need 
of massive, massive tax breaks. You think that Sheldon Adelson, who among other things contributed $5 million for the Trump inaugural, is in need of a massive tax break as well as the Koch brothers. So my question is pretty simple. And I want you to tell the American people why you think it is a good idea to give $3 trillion in tax breaks to the top 1% at a time when the rich are becoming much richer, while at the same time you're going to throw 17 million children in this country off of health insurance because of the unconscionable cuts that you are making to Medicaid? Why are you going to throw seniors in the state of Wyoming or the state of Vermont off the Meals on Wheels program, maybe the one nutritious program that they get a day? Why are you going to throw women and low-income babies off of the WIC program at a time when infant mortality rates in this country was already high. Do you really think it is a great idea to tell a low-income pregnant woman that you're going to take away the WIC program, take away nutrition programs from children in order to give a massive tax break of $52 billion to the Walton family? Please explain your logic to the American people. That was awesome. <laughs> so... What happened was uh, Mick Mulvaney, he then proceeded to try to answer the question, but like Republicans typically do, he tried to dodge the question and lie and obfuscate the truth, but Bernie Sanders backed him into a corner and would not let him get a word in if what he was espousing was bullshit. So Bernie Sanders held him to account on every single word that he said, and I want every other senator and member of the House of Representatives to pay attention because this is exactly how you hold someone accountable. Uh, I'll see if I can handle each of those in reverse. Actually, let me deal with the CBO first. I can't disparage who I don't know, and I don't think I've ever disparaged the director of the You made CBO. a dismissive remark about him. I made it. Even the CBO. You guys appointed the director. And again, I, all I'm telling you is that the results are awful. Uh, but you appointed them, so let's go with that. I, I, measure, I measure performance by results, Mr. Sanders, and if you continuously... Your opinion is numbers, that the results are terrible. I'm suggesting that it was a member of the Trump administration who appointed this gentleman, not some kind of radical Democrat. So we can agree then that the CBO puts out bad data? No, okay. we can't. We okay. can agree that you guys are beating up on a man that you appointed because you don't like his results. But anyhow, get back to the question. I don't Why like, tax don't breaks like the for billionaires and they're cuts not right. WIC working class um, kids? Uh, WIC serves all the projected uh, participants. There's no change there. Meals on Wheels is not reduced at all. The change that we make is through the... Uh, CBDG program, which you eliminate. The block grant thing. So you eliminate the block grant, you tell me that doesn't, that funds the program, you tell me that doesn't have an impact no, the on program the program. the program is funded, Senator, through the um, uh, old age or senior nutrition program, I think, through HHS, which we don't change. No, that's not that, true. No, it is true, actually. The CDBG program is a block grant to the states, yes. and some states do choose, choose, to use some and of that you eliminate money on that wheels, wheels and that total right, the bottom line is the t senator i mean if you uh, go ahead, answer the, the question the total money for meals on wheels that comes from cdbg is three percent that's it yeah, and i don't know how you can possibly contend that we're but going you to are eliminating the program that funds not only meals on wheels but many other programs at the discretion of governors and, and banks. I would be more than happy to have a long discussion about CDBGs. You asked about Medicaid as well. Um, the slashing of, of Medicaid, the dramatic cuts to Medicaid, um, is a slower growth rate in Medicaid. 
There's one year exception during the Affordable Care Act where, excuse me, the Affordable Health, the American Health Care Act, where um, we, the bill calls for the end to expansion and there's a small reduction that year, but generally speaking, on the 10-year budget, Medicaid spending goes up Every yeah, but so does health care inflation. We go through these games every single year. Inflation is going up a lot faster than the money that you're putting in. Bottom line is, tell me, I, let me get back to one question. Sure. Why do you think the Walton family needs a $52 billion tax break? My guess is that you're, you're basing that assertion on the only tax detail that we have in the budget. The repeal of the repeal estate of tax. The, uh, the exactly. Right. Um, and if we want to have a talk about why we're repealing that, I'd be more than happy to do Good. that. Good. Let's tell me. Because ordinary people are paying more. No, ordinary people do not have a wealth of $128 billion. The average, That's not an ordinary person. The average increase across this nation... You're not answering the question. The is question is... The, answer the question. The wealthiest family in America gets a $52 billion tax break as a result of the appeal of the estate tax. That's correct. Tell the American people why you think that's good when you cut Medicaid and you cut programs for kids. Again, we, we, we don't cut Medicaid. We're talking about repealing Obamacare. The results Sorry, that you mentioned... Sorry, 23 million people off of health insurance. That's right. The, the, which is a CBO number that I think you just agreed could be wrong. At the no, I didn't agree to that at all. Okay that we repeal Obama. Why does a billionaire family get a $52 billion tax break? Because Please tell the American people. Because we think it's wrong that real ordinary folks lose coverage, and we want to get rid ordinary of Ordinary people. Is yes. the Walton family an ordinary family? Uh, no, they're not. They're extraordinary. But ordinary people are losing coverage today under Obama. I ask you why the wealthiest it. family in America is getting a $52 billion and tax break. And I'm asking break. the question by saying because we repeal Obamacare. No, you and the estate tax, which applies to the top two-tenths of one percent. Um, Senator, okay, if that, if that well, oh, I'm, I'm sorry, I thought the assumption was we were looking at the tax, the, the tax reductions that are contained in Obamacare. Repeal. No, that's not what we're you talking about. No, tax. no, no. Okay. We're talking about the repeal of the estate tax, which All you right, just well, mentioned. Um, the budget assumes a deficit-neutral tax plan, because when we wrote the budget, we did not have nearly enough specifics to assume what you're assuming, which is the specific reductions. Yes, the proposals that the White House published about three or four weeks ago, the principles that we set forth, does include a reduction of the estate tax. Repeal of the estate tax, sir. You said, yeah, you know, you're absolutely right. It is a repeal of the estate tax, but I think it's, it's mathematically impossible to take those general principles and assume a direct impact on a particular family. You no, can't that's do it. Not. Nobody can do it. I've, I've seen estimates from groups that say, oh, it's going to no, add that's not, that's, by $2 trillion to $10 trillion. People no, just that's really not numbers. true. I mean, we don't know when people are going to be dying, that's for sure. But you can I'm make saying, those saying, estimates. We don't know that people are going to no, be dying. No, you don't know when somebody is going to be dying. But okay. the truth is okay. that if the family is worth 100 I'm pretty sure they're going to die eventually. That we can be pretty okay. sure of. Well, at least we agree on something. So yeah, that to me is just classic Bernie Sanders. It's going to go down as one of my favorite clips of all time because I just think that... It really shows that Bernie Sanders is maybe the one politician left in the country that still has courage to stand up to these asshole oligarchs and Republicans, uh, and he still stands up to Democrats as well, who just want to do the bidding of millionaires, billionaires, and the elites. So there are a couple of things in there that really irked me that Mick Mulvaney said. He said, the results of the CBO are awful. Right. <laughs> I would agree that they're awful because if you throw 24 million people off of their health insurance, that's... Indeed, pretty awful. But Mick Mulvaney wasn't talking about, you know, throwing people off of their health insurance being awful. He contends that the CBO was awful. Their score of the bill was awful because uh, it was wrong. It was incorrect. 
No. As Bernie Sanders rightfully pointed out, uh, Mick Mulvaney just didn't like the results, so he then decided to attack the CBO when Bernie Sanders pointed out that, I mean, this is your guy. Why are you attacking your guy? Because you don't like the conclusion that he came to. So uh, that was absolutely frustrating, but I mean, I'm not as frustrated because Bernie Sanders actually called him on it. So a lot of these clips, you know, most of the time, politicians will say something and then they'll go unchecked. And so I have to come out and express frustration and correct them and tell them why they're wrong. But Bernie Sanders did my job for me here. And it was just amazing. Now, another thing that he says here, uh, we don't cut Medicaid, we're repealing the Affordable Care Act. So <laughs> what he's contending with a straight face, mind you, is that by repealing the Affordable Care Act, that's not the same thing as cutting Medicaid, even though if you repeal the Affordable Care Act, you, in fact, cut Medicaid. So, what are you saying here? He's arguing based on semantics, and it's just so disingenuous. I, I don't even know how he was able to not burst out laughing, because that's how ridiculous that claim is. No, I'm not cutting Medicaid. We're repealing the Affordable Care Act. Right, which is leading to a cut to Medicaid. I mean, it's just ridiculous. How can you argue that? How can Republicans seriously argue that? It's just, it, it honestly almost made my head explode when I heard him say that. He also states here, uh, you can't assume that repealing the estate tax would benefit one family, except it's meant to benefit the very wealthy. So if you specifically call out one family, the Waltons, who are just multi-billionaires, they have a large amount of wealth, of course that's going to impact them in a way that will obviously benefit them. But yet, we're not supposed to look at one family and see how that's going to affect them. Donald Trump isn't opting for a repeal on the estate tax because he wants his own children to benefit from this, right? No, of course not. Why would he do that? He's looking out for us. It's why he keeps pushing forward, uh, you know, these, these bills that cut taxes for the wealthy and harm the poor. Mick Mulvaney is just one of the biggest weasels in politics today. And there's a lot of them, but Mick Mulvaney is certainly towards the top of the list. Now, the budget that Donald Trump proposed, I mean, what he's doing, what the Republican Party is doing is they're starving the poor and they're giving more money to the very, very wealthy. And it's just disgusting. And here's what I think I've concluded, and you can disagree with me. So when it comes to both parties, they're both terrible. Democrats just don't care about uh, about us. I mean, you, you hear Tom Perez all the time say, you know, the Republicans don't give a shit. No, that's Democrats. Democrats don't give a shit about people. Republicans, on the other hand, they actually hate the working class. They hold us in contempt. For some reason, they don't like us. We're a nuisance because we get in the way. We protest when they try to cut our health insurance and give more tax breaks to their donors and their friends who are wealthy and billionaires. So that's basically what it's, what it's come down to. We've got Democrats who don't give a shit about people, and we've got Republicans who just outright hate people. I mean, this is what we see in the policies that both parties continue to produce. But I mean, getting back to this budget here, it's a complete joke. It, it's just a joke. So I'm so glad that Bernie Sanders called him out and just would not let anything that he was trying to say get by that was bullshit. So he held his feet to the fire, and this is what you have to do when you see an elected official and a public official doing something that will hurt the public. Many media outlets are reporting on a new story about Hillary Clinton. So she recently spoke at Recode, and... 
people are saying that she's continuing to play the blame game and in this edition of the blame game she's blaming the dnc for her loss and by proxy blaming one of her best friends debbie wasserman schultz who literally rigged the primary in her favor so people you know they see this as hillary clinton playing the blame game but I i'm to the point where i'm onto hillary clinton's shenanigans She's not serious. She She's trying stand-up comedy. She's trying to pitch a stand-up special to Netflix because what she said is so ludicrous. I just can't believe that even she believes it. So according to CNN, at Recode's Code Conference in California on Wednesday, the former Democratic presidential nominee was reflective, quick to crack jokes, and eager to cast blame. The more than hour-long question and answer event marked the latest in a series of public appearances for Clinton in which she explicitly took on the actions of those around her and other external circumstances in explaining why she lost on election day. I take responsibility for every decision I make, but that's not why I lost, Clinton said. Perhaps Clinton's most fresh and savage criticism on Wednesday was directed at the Democratic National Committee. She went as far as to say that when she became her party's presidential nominee, she inherited nothing from the committee. I'm now the nominee of the Democratic Party. I inherit nothing from the Democratic Party, Clinton said. It was bankrupt. It was on the verge of insolvency. Its data was mediocre to poor, non-existent, wrong. I had to inject money into it, the DNC, to keep it going. <laughs> <laughs> so literally after the dnc rigged the primary for her uh she said that they didn't offer her enough support she had to inject her own funds into the dnc you know what that's that's brilliant right there that is comedic gold hillary clinton she may not have been successful in politics but i think that if she tried stand-up comedy for reals then she could actually have a career there because that's amazing. That is hilarious right there. I can't take it seriously at all. I'm not mad. It's just funny. That's just, <laughs> that's what I like to call cognitive dissonance. She wants to believe so bad that she did nothing wrong that she's willing to implicate everyone but herself. And what she's doing here is pretty clever. Think about this. She is criticizing the DNC and she knows that everyone despises the DNC, but they also dislike Hillary Clinton. So in criticizing the DNC, people will tacitly support the DNC by coming to their defense saying, no, it wasn't the DNC, it was you, Hillary Clinton. And in effect, she's getting us to defend the DNC. Not going to fall for that, Hillary Clinton. No, 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 no. I'm not going to fall for that. Uh, I don't like the DNC or you. And we know that they were on your side. They were carrying water for you 100% of the time. So nobody believes you or has sympathy for you. However, what's interesting is that uh, ex-DNC aides are actually hitting back. So, according to the Washington Post, a top former DNC aide tweeted overnight that Clinton's allegations were fucking bullshit and even suggested that the Clinton campaign ignored its warnings about how competitive Michigan, Pennsylvania, and Wisconsin were. Those three states proved decisive for President Trump, and especially in the case of Michigan and Wisconsin, were neglected by the Clinton campaign. Now, let's go back to the, the quote she said, I take responsibility for every decision I make, but that's not why I lost. So, who was it that forced you to not go to Wisconsin? You didn't campaign in the Rust Belt. You thought you had them on lock, and you lost. And furthermore, what you also did was take voters for granted. You thought that Bernie Sanders supporters would be like your supporters in 2008 and migrate over to you as your supporters migrated over to Barack Obama in 2008, but we told you that was a problem, and you kind of took it a step further. You not only competed in a contested primary, which is which is bound to get divisive, but I mean, you, you shunned the base. You cheated your way to the nomination, shunned the base, and then when you had an opportunity to reach out to progressives, 
you you didn't take that opportunity. You chose Tim Kaine as your running mate instead of someone like Elizabeth Warren or Bernie Sanders. So if you think that you're not to blame, you are horribly mistaken. And this is something that is so loony, so delusional that I can't take her seriously. I don't think she believes the bullshit that's coming out of her mouth. I think she's being funny here because, because I, I can't rationalize this any other way. And honestly, if it is the case that Hillary Clinton really believes that she's not to blame, then this is the direct result of a rich oligarch surrounding themselves around yes men and yes women who tell them that any and everything that they do is correct. See, if you put yourself on a bubble, when that bubble pops, you can't face reality. So that's what Hillary Clinton is doing now. She's refusing to face reality, and you see her with this battle. You know, she, she's facing cognitive dissonance, and she, she doesn't want to face the fact that she ran one of the worst campaigns in American history, and her entire campaign was bereft of policy and strategy and she made rookie mistakes that a veteran seasoned politician like herself should never ever make so hillary clinton she has no one to blame but her, but herself and I, I i do believe that the dnc is culpable uh in handing donald trump the election as well as hillary clinton because it was them that employed the pie piper strategy where they elevate trump to demonize republicans and you know paint donald trump as the poster boy of republicans but that didn't work out now hillary clinton is really angry that she is not powerful i am winning i am now, during the same event, she also took the time to blame her own supporters, presumably because she said that she was the victim of high expectations. So that's kind of, you know, that's a slight to your own supporters because you're saying that they expected too much from you and you're kind of placing blame on them. She also blamed James Comey again, of course. Uh, and she specifically called out the New York Times, alleging that they covered the email issue like Pearl Harbor. You can't make this kind of shit up. So... <laughs> Yeah, what I want to do now is go through the list of people that Hillary Clinton decided to blame. At this point, she's blamed Obama, Bernie Sanders, James Comey, Julian Assange, WikiLeaks, Russian WikiLeaks, mind you, Vladimir Putin, the New York Times, the media, sexism, the Democratic Party, the Republican Party, the DNC, people with high expectations, and the one person that's not on this list is Hillary Clinton. So, uh, I think she's running out of people to blame. She, you know, she's going to come full circle to where she only has one person left to blame. And if all of these issues did, in fact, play a part in her campaign's demise, then that's her own fault for not making up the votes that she was losing to all of these external factors. But, I mean, it wasn't from external factors. She ran a terrible campaign, and the problem with Hillary Clinton, like most corporate Democrats, is that the more you hear from them, the less you like them. So there's a reason why her approval rating is relatively high if she's not in the public eye. But as she continues to come out and, you know, uh, stump for Democrats and talk about why everyone else is to blame for her loss except her, she continues to be disliked, a, a very unpopular figure in American politics. So uh, if she's doing all of this so that way... She is paving herself a path to 2020 and to run in 2020. Please do, Hillary Clinton. You know, I was I was really averse to the idea of Hillary Clinton running in 2020, but I think that it would be hilarious. Uh, and I will grab my popcorn and watch that because that would be a great show to watch. I mean, American politics is already a joke. Democrats are trying to push for Jerry Springer instead of Nina Turner. We have a reality TV show star as president, an action movie star maybe running for president in 2020. So, I mean, hey, let's throw Hillary Clinton into the mix because we can't be more of a laughing stock around the world if we tried. So, fuck it.
Members of the Standing Rock Sioux Tribe and other water protectors fought to stop the Dakota Access Pipeline because it threatened the water supply of not just Standing Rock Sioux, but millions of American citizens. And they argued, correctly so, that this pipeline is a danger because pipelines like this leak all the time. It's not a matter of if this pipeline leaks one day, it's a matter of when it leaks. And we found out in the beginning of March, prior to this pipeline even being in service yet, that it spilled 84 gallons and were now finding out that there was another spill just days later. So according to Business Insider, a smaller leak of 20 gallons occurred two days later on March 5th. The second leak happened in rural Mercer County, North Dakota, the result of an above-ground valve malfunction. The two leaks preceded the most widely known incident to date, which occurred April 4th at a pump station north of Crandon, South Dakota. The April leak spilled 84 gallons of oil before officials contained it, again with no damage being done to the local environment. But that's not really the point. The point is not that the leaks from this pipeline caused environmental damage. The point is that this pipeline is not officially in service, but it is already leaking. I mean, this is a pipeline that will transport nearly 500,000 barrels of crude oil across four states, and it's already leaking before the oil is fully in it yet. So that's a problem. That spells disaster. So that's why we care. It's not that uh, you know, that the 84 gallons caused environmental damage is that we're predicting what's to come when it's fully operational. Now, we know that the water protectors tried to warn the company and the state of North Dakota not to pursue this pipeline, but they were brutalized as a result. They were hit with concussion grenades, sprayed with cold water and freezing cold weather, attacked by guard dogs of armed mercenaries. They were harassed by militarized police and arbitrarily detained. And quite frankly, they were just abused. They were abused. They were the victims of state-sanctioned violence. And we now know that the reason why they were treated so poorly was because the tactics being used against them were literally counter-terrorism tactics, according to an investigative report by The Intercept, which is titled, Leaked Documents Reveal Counter-Terrorism Tactics Used at Standing Rock to Defeat Pipeline Insurgencies. Now, they found that a shadowy international mercenary and security firm known as Tiger Swan targeted the movement opposed to the Dakota Access Pipeline with military-style counter-terrorism measures, collaborating closely with police in at least five states, according to internal documents obtained by The Intercept. The documents provide the first detailed picture of how Tiger Swan, which originated as a U.S. military and State Department contractor helping to execute the global war on terror, worked at the behest of its client, Energy Transfer Partners, the company building the Dakota Access Pipeline to respond to the indigenous-led movement that sought to stop the project. Internal Tiger Swan communications describe the movement as an ideologically driven insurgency with a strong religious component and compare the anti-pipeline water protectors to jihadist fighters. One report dated February 27, 2017 states that since the movement generally followed the jihadist insurgency model while active, we can expect the individuals who fought for and supported it to follow a post-insurgency model after its collapse. Drawing comparisons with post-Soviet Afghanistan the report warns, while we can expect to see the continued spread of the anti-DAPL diaspora, aggressive intelligence preparation of the battlefield and active coordination between intelligence and security elements are now a proven method of defeating pipeline insurgencies. More than 100 internal documents leaked to the intercept by a Tiger Swan contractor, as well as a set of over 1,000 documents obtained via public records request, reveal that Tiger Swan spearheaded a multifaceted private security operation characterized by sweeping and invasive surveillance of protests. 
protesters. So to simplify all of this, a Native American tribe was worried about their water supply. So they peacefully assembled and protested this and they were then treated like terrorists. They were viewed as jihadists were. I don't really know that I have the words to describe how disgusting this is. And I've been someone who has constantly talked about the brutal tactics employed, not just by the state of North Dakota, but by armed mercenaries who employed attack dogs on the protesters who were being peaceful. And this makes sense now. They were treating them like terrorists. So if you care about your water supply, they're going to treat you like a terrorist. It's not energy transfer partners who brutalize these protesters with the state of North Dakota, that's the terrorist. It is the peaceful protesters who were arbitrarily arrested and harassed by militarized police when they decided to gather for prayers and march. This is the United States of America. We are losing our democracy, if you can even call it a democracy. And certain political science studies show that we're not even a democracy. We're an oligarchy, and this proves it. If money rules everything, because again, you know, money is behind this. There were billions of dollars to be made. And, you know, ordinary citizens don't have a say. We're not a democracy. I, I can't say that we're a democracy with this with a straight face. And I still certainly refer to the U.S. as a democracy, but... We're a democracy in name only. We really don't meet the standards of what a political scientist known as Robert Dahl refers to as polyarchy. We, we just don't meet those standards. So by that standard alone, you could declare us non-democratic because what we're seeing here happening before our very eyes is despicable and it's just unacceptable. And you saw how Elizabeth Warren and Barack Obama, people who are supposed to be on our side, were silent. I honestly don't know what to say about this. This this isn't surprising, but at the same time, to be hit with the reality of this news, is just it's jaw dropping to me. I, I I couldn't believe my eyes as I was reading this, and unfortunately, uh, energy transfer partners there'll be no repercussions. They're going to win at the end of the day. We're not a democracy. Well, that's all I got for you guys. If you've made it this far in the episode, then you truly are a trooper. Because <laughs> sometimes my rants can probably get a little bit mundane, but you know what? Uh, hopefully you know that it's all coming from a good place, and if I get ranty, it's because I care. So thank you all so much. Again, as I usually do, I want to send a huge thank you to the Patreon patrons and the people that contribute to us via PayPal. Thank you so much for supporting the show at a time when... Making revenue via YouTube is very, very difficult. Thank you all so much. Uh, so that's it. I'll see you all next week. Take care.